Our scripture reading this morning is from Romans chapter 5. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a privilege and an honor it is to come and worship you. God, thank you for that song. Thank you for that beautiful hymn. Lord, may we not just sing it, but may it ring true in our lives. May you be our everything. And may that be shown to an unbelieving and hurting world the greatness and the beauty of your grace and your riches to us in Christ. Thank you, Father. Thank you for your Son. Thank you for the Spirit who drives us forward in sanctification. May we enjoy our life with you, and may we be blessed by your word this morning. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can be seated. Well, thank you guys for being here. Happy New Year. Yeah, a few people say it. There we go. I know technically the church met last week, but my wife and I were literally in the air uh, flying from Virginia to uh, Florida. And, you know, it was, it was interesting. So I, I, if you guys haven't noticed, um, I, I actually don't complain about a ton of things, but weather is one of them. And I was freezing in Virginia the entire time. And um, we had this moment where we walked out of a, a diner one night with my parents and it was 15 degrees outside with a wind chill of like two. And Gideon, over the years, you know, he loves my dad a lot. And so he's like, I want to go live with Pop-Pop. I want to move back to Virginia. It's like, dude, you never lived in Virginia, so move back's not really a thing for you. But, and so Jackie and I have told him, though, over the years, like, dude, you, you don't want to live there. God, once air conditioning was invented, designed Florida to be the place where everyone should live because it's the perfect temperature here in California. That's it. You know, it's like the, the perfect temperatures. And I, some of you guys are rolling your eyes like, no, no, you, you, yeah, okay, I'm just telling you, move north. You'll be sorry. So anyway, take advice from my kid because he walks out and he goes, this is terrible. And we're walking to the car and I said, well, what's, so, what's wrong? With it? It's too cold. I don't like it here. And I said, well, dude, you know, you had told me that, that you wanted to move back to Virginia, that you wanted to be near, you know, Grandma and Pop-Pop. I was wrong, Dad. You and Mom were right. I was wrong. I was like, remember that, okay? Because Dad's always right. And he's like, no, Dad, the only person who's always right is Jesus. And I'm like, well, yes, okay. But, but in your case, Dad's always right as well. And so anyway, we, when, we <laughs> when we came back, by the way, that's not true at all. I, t I freely admit to Gideon frequently how messed up I am. But we, we get back and we land in Orlando and it's 65. And I'm like, oh my gosh, yes, the heavens have opened. Right, this is exactly what it's supposed to be. And then the next day, you know, you guys, 
I don't know what happened down here, but it's like 30 degrees again, and I'm miserable. And, and so, but the good news is, is that heat is working in this building again, <laughs> because I walked in here on Wednesday, and it was like 45 degrees in here, and it's a balmy 62 in here right now. So thankful for that. Um, so anyway, happy, happy 2018. I'm already off track. That wasn't in my notes. Here we go. Um, uh, if, you're, if you paid attention at all when I was reading the scripture earlier, you noticed that we've actually covered these verses already back uh, in November. Um, and then, you know, as you guys knew, we took a, a five-week break in December to do a, a, a season of Advent. You know, just kind of preparing for Christmas, preparing our hearts, preparing our minds for, for everything that kind of Christmas entails. And then last week, Brent kind of finished that up, like a, a post-Christmas Advent sermon. And so there are a few reasons why I've kind of chosen for us to cover these verses again. Number one, it's been five weeks since we've been in the book of Romans, and my wife was a teacher, and so I know what happens after long breaks. No one remembers anything. And so we're going we're gonna to jump back in and hopefully kind of jog our, our memories about where we were at in regards to Paul's letter to the church at Rome. Uh, but also, uh, last time we preached through these verses, due, due to time constraints, I didn't feel like I got to go in depth on these verses as much as I would have liked to have. And so this will give us an opportunity to study these verses a little more closely and be encouraged by those. So let me, let me start by just giving us a really quick overview of where we've been in Romans up until this point. Because especially if you're new here, it's 2018, people show up at church that have never been to church in like six or seven months. Or, you know, I know some of you guys are here with a friend or whatever else. So let me just kind of catch you guys up uh, to, to what we've learned as we've been studying this letter out up until this point. And so if you, if you look at Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, uh, let me read that aloud to you. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so what we, what we said back when we were working through Romans chapter 1 is that this is the theme of the, the, the entirety of the book of Romans. That Paul is writing this letter to the church at Rome to, to, to declare to them, to let them know that the gospel is central to everything and that he is not ashamed of it. And that everything after kind of this point in his letter would be a series of arguments kind of trying to, to prove this point, to prove this declaration that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for those who would believe. And so, you know, as we moved into Romans chapter 2, we kind of saw Paul's first argument, and that first argument was this. Everyone is sin, is sinful. We're all sinners. And, and he started with the Gentiles, who were the non-Jews, and he said, you know, everyone is deserving of God's wrath because of, of general revelation, because of creation and conscience that, that no human being is without excuse. All are sinful and under God's wrath. And then he moved on to the religious Jews and said, okay, just so that we're clear, Jews stand under that same judgment as well. Just because they knew who the true God was, because they had the scriptures, uh, because they had you know, the priesthood, they had all these different things, they're still deserving of God's wrath because they've had God's word and they still disobeyed it. And so he, he's brought us to this point. His first argument was, is, hey, look, everyone is in the same place. We all start at the same place. There's no, as in, in regards to a relationship with God, 
It doesn't matter what culture you grew up in, where you were born, who you know, how much money you have, what kind of job you have, what languages you speak. Everyone starts at the same platform, enemies of God because of sin. And it may, the, the reasons you're guilty may take a little bit of a different scope or shape according to Paul, but it doesn't matter. Everyone's under the wrath and coming judgment of God the Father. And so then he moved into argument two in Romans chapter three, and I'm going to read these two verses to you from Romans chapter three, verses 21 and 22. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So argument one, we're all sinners deserving of God's wrath. Argument two, but God has declared us not guilty Therefore, we are justified, the doctrine of justification. We are justified by the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Through faith in him, we are justified. Right, so that's argument, argument one and argument two. Argument one, bad news. Argument two, good news. Right, good news of what God has done for us. And since that declaration, Paul has been trying to kind of drive that point home, especially to those who had an understanding of the Old Testament. So his, his third argument was this. God has always operated under grace. That those that are declared righteous by the Father, it doesn't matter when they were born, that this it has always worked by God's grace. It's never been, hey, if I'm a good enough person, I can earn salvation. If I'm a good enough person, God will accept me. And, and his argument is, I know we're, we're Jewish. I know that we have a great love for these Old Testament heroes. I know that we have the law. We have a great respect for the law. But our father of our faith, Abraham, was justified because of God's grace towards him. Because of his faith in God and God's graciousness towards him, he was justified. He was declared not guilty. Now, not only Abraham, but then we move on right to the, the greatest king that Israel had, David. He wrote in a psalm, and, and then Paul quotes it, how beautiful it is to be justified by faith. To be, have your sins not counted against you. And so he's been kind of constructing this argument that says we're sinners, we're saved by God's grace towards us in Christ, and God has always operated in as far as justification, declaring people not guilty by grace through faith. That's how God has always operated. And then he moved into argument four, and that was this, once we started in, working our way into Romans chapter five, that justification, being declared not guilty, has practical implications for, for us right now. Right. And, and, and this is something I think that, that is super important to make sure we're really dwelling on this year. Okay, because typically, right, the church in America views justification, views the gospel as a, an, a one-time event that is to be treated like a get-out-of-hell-free card. That, that, that the gospel is sufficient for you and I to save us so that we don't have to spend eternity in hell. But that's kind of where it ends. 
That's, that's where justification and, and the importance of, of what Christ did on the cross, that's where it stops. And as we saw when we worked our way into Romans chapter 5, that is not the case at all. Paul says, he says this, look, not only are we justified and saved from the wrath of God, but the current applications of that truth is that we have peace with God currently, we have union with God in Christ, and that through suffering, which is promised to all believers, we are given hope because we can see the work of God in our lives in the midst of suffering. That suffering produces in you and I this inexpressible understanding of God's got this. I, I can't describe it, but God's got this. I, I'm, in the, I'm in the pits of despair right now. Everything is kind of crumbling around me at the moment, and yet there's just this inexpressible right, understanding that I have that everything can fall apart and God still got this. And so that in the midst of suffering, practically, we see the doctrine of justification, right, kind of pressing us forward as followers of Christ, encouraging us to remain in him and be encouraged by this. And so the, the gospel is not this one-time event where you pray a prayer and you come up to the front of the church and you, you know, you burn your bad CDs or no one does that. Maybe you throw your iPod in there or, you know, get rid of your Spotify account or whatever it is, right? But, you know, where you, you make this one big decision, right, to, to follow Jesus and then it has no practical implications for you any longer. That the gospel should be impacting your daily life. And so here's what I want to do, right? We're going to start looking at verse 5, and we're going to kind of zero in on some continued encouragement that Paul says the gospel has for you and I. Right? And I don't know, I don't know about you guys, but I'm always in need of a little bit of encouragement to get going. When it's this cold, it's encouragement to get out of bed, but it, it's different every day, right? And so look at verse 5 with me. Get on the right page. That would help. All right, here we go. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, so, so as, as I said just a minute ago, right, this is, this is important to understanding the, the implications of how God is at work in your life right now, okay? And, and number one, right, we, we, I just said that some practical implications of the gospel is that you have peace with God, right, you have union with God in Christ, and that you will experience suffering, but that that, that suffering will, will create in you hope, right? So when you get to verse 5, right, Paul says that hope does not disappoint because God's love has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So, so here, here's something I want you to hear this morning, okay? You can, if, I know we're a couple days into 2018, but here's how you can start 2018. God, if you are in Christ, God loves you. Let, let me repeat that. God loves you. Isn't that great? Right? Like, the, like the truth of Scripture is that God loves you. Now this, this is where, you know, we as human beings really start messing things up. Right? Because we know who we are. And if we're honest with ourselves, 
I'm pretty unlovable a lot of the time. And, and I know that about myself. And so then we do this thing where when we look at ourselves and we are honest with ourselves, they're saying, I'm, I'm pretty unlovable. How could God love me? How could, how could God choose to love me? And, and the other problem we have is that we don't define love properly. Right? We, 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 tend to, we tend to, in the West especially, I'm going to use this word, right, monetize everything. Right? Where it, everything's quid pro quo, right? Like how many of you guys got Christmas gifts? How many of you guys got Christmas gifts from somebody that you didn't get a gift for? Okay, about half the room. How many of you guys felt awkward that you didn't get that person a gift? There, yeah, okay, a few people are honest. Other people are like, I mean, yeah, kind of, but am I, you know, he's going to make a point here, so I can't really raise my hand, right? 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 Gift giving, by definition, is you getting something you didn't earn or deserve. Okay, but here, here in the West, right, in, in, in American culture, right, we've even monetized gift giving. Right? I know I use this show all the time as an example, right? But I love The Office, so it frequently kind of comes into my office. And, and early on in that show, right, they do, they do the, the Christmas exchange, and there was a $20 limit, right? Because we've monetized everything, and so we can't be awkward. And what does Michael Scott do? He buys the $200 iPod for Ryan, and it makes this huge, awkward scene, right? Because he says, oh, I'm expressing my love for Ryan, $200 worth, and, you know, Phyllis makes me a, a homemade oven mitt. And he's really upset about it, right? This is what we tend to do, right? We monetize these things, and we do the same thing with love, right? Uh, you, know, I, you know, especially like if you are, if you are married with somebody or you, in a, you are in a relationship with somebody, if you are operating in that relationship and you're, you're doing well, you're loving that person, you're doing what you're supposed to do, it, when you don't get the love you want back, how do you respond? You're mad, you're bitter, you're angry, you know, what, what's wrong with him? What's wrong with her? Why, why aren't they doing what they're, why aren't they loving me well? Don't they see how well I'm loving them? I'm deserving of all of this. And we, we have this lack of understanding what love is, right? If we understand Paul in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 when he describes love, it, whenever you get a chance, right, go and read 1 Corinthians 13. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to look at the, the words that Paul uses to describe love, and then I want you to tell me if they are adjectives or action words. Spoiler alert, they're action words. Every single one of them. Love is patient. Oh, Kevin, that's an adjective. It can be an adjective, but you and I either choose to be patient or we don't. It's an action word. Love is kind. Oh, Kevin, that's an adjective. Eh, it can describe an action of somebody. Either you choose to be kind to somebody or you don't. And you'll work through that and you'll see what Paul is saying about love is that it's the choice of the person giving it. And so what we're seeing here in Romans chapter 5 is God chooses to love us. That he made this choice. Now, here's the reality. It's not because of you, but because of him. God chooses to love you because of who he is, not because you're worthy. Guys, by the way, that's good news. It's really, really, it should be the most exciting thing you hear all day today. 
That God chooses to love you because he wants to love you, not because you are worthy. Because here's the reality. If God chooses to love you because you're worthy in some way, shape, or form, guess what? At some point, you're not going to be worthy. At some point, you are inevitably going to fail. And yet the truth that we see here is that God loves you, and we know that to be true. You can know that you're loved. This is what we're going to see this morning. You in this room this morning, if you are a follower of Jesus, can know that you're loved by God. And, and he says in verse 5, you know that you are loved by God because the Holy Spirit has been given to you. Now, this means that there is an inner experience for those that are in Christ of experience of the Holy Spirit. There is something internally going on inside of you. Now, these, this will kind of manifest itself in two ways, right? One, it will express its way in some sort of an emotional feeling, okay? Where it can be strong or mild, but there are going to be times where you feel peace and feel loved in a way that's not describable according to your current situation or status, okay? I, I remember very, very vividly as a new believer, as a, as a junior in college, relatively young believer going through about an eight or nine month period where this was just kind of my life. I woke up every day and I just experienced inexpressible joy to be alive. I, I couldn't describe it. I, I, I was just happy. I, I'd be walking around the campus of my university just praying and doing things. It was just something was just going on inside of me. And you know, the, it, the weird thing is, is if you're not a Christian here this morning, I can relate with what you're probably feeling right now. You're like, what is this guy talking about? It sounds like supernatural, mystical, weird, magic, whatever else. When people would talk about like, I just have this inexpressible joy about what God has done in my life, I'd be like, you're weird. Like, what are you talking about? And then God saved me, and I experienced that. And this is one of those strange things as a Christian where Paul says it is true, I've experienced it and know it to be true, and yet I still can't describe exactly how it works. Because it manifests itself for different people in different ways. Right? And so I went through this eight or nine month period right after becoming a follower of Christ where I experienced this, and then since that time, it's come and gone periodically at various points in my life, oftentimes when I, I needed it the most. And, and the purpose of, of this kind of inner peace that the Holy Spirit brings is to encourage you that God loves you and that the gospel is true even when there's chaos around you. It, it has a purpose, right? The, the Holy Spirit is our seal and sign of what God has done for us. And so it, it's just this internal feeling. Now, now here's the reality, right? It doesn't always work this way. Right? I love what the Puritan Richard Sibb says about this, right? Listen to this. Sometimes our spirits cannot stand in trials. Therefore, sometimes the immediate testimony of the Spirit is necessary. It comes saying, I am thy salvation. And our hearts are stirred up and comforted with joy inexpressible. This joy has degrees. Sometimes it is clear and strong that we question nothing and other times doubts can come in soon afterwards. And so what he's saying is, is that the work of the Holy Spirit is mysterious and sometimes it will create this feeling inside of you where nothing can be done to challenge your, your belief that God loves you and other times doubts will still be allowed to creep in. But God uses the Holy Spirit to comfort us and remind us of what he has done for us. It assures us of who we are in him. Now, I need to give a little bit of a disclaimer here. Okay, because what frequently can happen 
when we start talking about the role of the Holy Spirit, and especially these types of kind of like visceral responses to the gospel, is we tend to seek this out solely. Let me want kind of explain to you, like, you know, I have people tell me this all the time. I've been in ministry long enough to say, like, Kevin, I just don't feel like I'm connected to God right now. And what they're describing is, is this kind of work of, this visceral work of the Holy Spirit in their, in their soul. Okay. There, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with even desiring kind of that, that visceral feeling and response to God's work in your life. But seeking after that soul kind of emotional visceral response means you're seeking after something that's not God. You, you want that feeling. You don't necessarily want him. And so starting with that and knowing that, saying the, the, the desire for that, while not wrong, can become sinful at times, right? It's the same way that, that the church at Corinth struggled with the, the role of gifts in the Holy Spirit, right? The, the Holy Spirit distributes gifts as he wills. Some people speak in tongues. Some people are able to do prophecy. Others have gifts of administration. Right? I would love to have that gift, by the way. If you have the gift of administration, like, I envy you. Like, I struggle to answer emails properly and on time, right? Jackie makes fun of me all the time. She's like, what have you been doing today? I was like, well, it took about 45 minutes to answer a couple emails. She's like, how in the world did that take you 45 minutes? I don't know. I couldn't work around my email inbox to figure this stuff out and respond to things properly, right? And so different people have different gifts, but what can frequently happen is we see, oh, this person has the gift of prophecy, or this person has a, a, a gift to be able to do evangelism, and I, and I, I want that gift, not being satisfied with the gift that God has given you to use within the kingdom of God. And so this visceral response, right, can, can be used by God to encourage you, but it's not necessarily something you should be seeking all the time. Now, I will tell you this. I, I believe this wholeheartedly, that there, that there are ways that you can experience this visceral response and there are things that you can do to, that would help encourage this okay and 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 i'm going to tell you something probably you don't want to hear the the easiest way to find yourself internally enjoying god and being encouraged by the work of the holy spirit in your life is to be committed to spiritual disciplines you know, a, a lot of us right we're, we're, we're young christians Right, we, we, we want the benefits and kind of these responses of, of, of walking with God, but we don't want to, to do what God asks of us. I can tell you that, that in my life, when I have been spiritually disciplined, right, have been the times where I've experienced what I'm talking about right now. When I, when I have been meditating on God's word, when I have been obedient and putting sin to death, when I have been praying and praying, and then adding more prayer to my life. Those are the times where I'm experiencing that because, and you want to know why? A commitment to spiritual disciplines shows a commitment to your need of God. Your spiritual disciplines are a means to an end, right? Being spiritually disciplined is helpful because it points you to where you need to be. It helps you focus in, in amongst the clutter and on what God is trying to do at a particular time in your life. And so what we see here is this, right? God loves you, and it's demonstrated by the fact that the Holy Spirit has been given to you. So this first kind of demonstration of God's love to you and I is internal. It's an internal response to what God's doing. It's an internal reality of God's love for you, but it's experiential. Now, 
if God stopped there, I think there could be some issues. Because probably every person in this room who has been a Christian for longer than two or three months has experienced moments where they don't feel like what we're talking about right there. We don't experience that internal kind of indescribable joy that Paul talks about with the work of the Holy Spirit. But luckily, God, Paul says there's another way that God demonstrates his love towards us, right? Look at verses 6 through 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So how else can we know that we are loved? That while we were weak, Jesus died for the ungodly. Your emotions can change. The historical fact of the cross cannot. And, and God's dying for you proves that God loves you in a lot of ways. But Paul mentions one kind of obvious way to kind of help remind you to stay rooted in what God has done. Answer this question for me. Who would you die for? Honestly. You're sitting here this morning. Is there anyone in your life that you would die for? Right? Like, if, like as I kind of wrestled with that question earlier this week, I put down my wife and my kids. Some of you guys think I might die for you? Probably not. Sorry. But typically, right, when you're, when you're wrestling with that question, right, what you're doing is, you're, you're, you're really in reality, here's what I did. You know, I, I was like, you know, is it, is it worth it to die for this person or not? Are, are they worth it? Like, you know, like, when I was thinking about would I die for my kids or not? One, I love them, but two, I die for them because they, they have an entire life to live. I'm probably halfway through, maybe less, because I eat a lot of Taco Bell. And that no matter, no matter what the case may be, right, it, ma it makes more sense, right? Josiah and Gideon have a lot of life left to live. I can give my life for them so that they might make much of God in their remaining time here. Because I have less time than them. I, yeah, I'd be willing to give my life for them. But then if you start thinking about other people, it's like, well, are you going to give your life for your neighbor? Well, he comes home, pulls into the garage, and shuts the door and doesn't want to talk to anybody. I'm not really interested in dying for that guy. I don't even know what's going on in his house. My neighbor across the street, I mean, she's really sweet, but I'm younger than her. Right, like, there, we start playing this game, like, is, is this person worthy of us giving our life or not? Have you ever seen the movie Saving Private Ryan? At the end of the movie, when Tom Hanks' character's dying, by the way, this is a spoiler alert, I'm sorry if you've never seen the movie. But at the end of the movie, when Tom Hanks is dying, right, he looks at Private Ryan, and as he's dying, right, he says, make, make it worth it. Make all of this worth it. And what he's saying to him is, hey, hey, a bunch of people died trying to save you in the midst of this war. Make it worth it. This is what he's talking about right here. Make, make us having died for you be worth it. Live a, live a, live a full life. And so as we think through this, right, it's like, who would we be willing to die for, right? And there's probably not many people on that list. Okay, Paul says, all right, here's how you know then that God loves you. Jesus died willfully 
for a group of obstinate and disobedient people who were in open rebellion towards his father. That, that's how you can know. You're, if you're ever questioning, does Jesus love me? Does God love me? Yes, he died on the cross for you. Well, I did this today. Doesn't matter. Repent and believe. Right? It doesn't matter what you did. You cannot change the historical fact that it was the Father's perfect plan to send his only son to die on the cross on behalf of your sin. And that God demonstrates that love towards you because you weren't worthy of being saved. Right? If you're playing that internal memory game in your mind that I was playing earlier, is this person worth, worth dying for or not? Right? If God had done that, guess what the answer for all of us would have been? No. And some of you guys are like, Mom told me I was really special. To Mom, you are special. But if we're talking about worth, especially in regards to the cosmic creator of the universe... You are not worthy of God sending his only son to die for you. And yet God chose to do it because he loves you. God died for the wicked men and women who challenged his authority and pushed back on him. Think about the magnitude of that. How many of you guys have ever seen the movie Blood Diamond? Not many of you. Yeah, I, I, the, the older I get, the less you guys have seen. Really good movie. Okay, and I'm going to spoil this one for you too. I'm sorry. So, Leonardo DiCaprio's character is this guy named Danny Archer, and he, he, he meets this, this guy in, in Africa named Solomon Vandy. And th- th- this particular part of the country is, is caught up in, in the diamond trade. And... What would happen is, is these, these guerrilla groups in the country would basically kidnap children in villages and then use them as part of their army so that they could then own these diamond mines and make money and profit off of it. That's kind of like the premise of the movie. And what ends up happening is, is Solomon's son is kidnapped by these guerrillas, and they brainwash these kids. That's what they do with them. They, they brainwash them so that they'll, they'll fight for the, for the military and, and end up, you know, attacking their, even their own families at times uh, to enslave them for, this, for, the, for the diamond trade. And so by the end of the movie, they've gone through all this stuff, and there's a lot of things happening. And Danny and Solomon kind of find this big diamond that they're after. That's, that's kind of like the, the point of the movie. They're trying to get this one specific diamond. And they find this diamond, and they've been through this kind of this huge conflict. And as they're sitting there kind of celebrating, they hear a pi- uh, the click of a pistol. And Danny tells Solomon, turn around, Solomon, Solomon. And there's a little boy standing there pointing a gun at Solomon. And that person pointing the gun is Solomon's son, who's been brainwashed by this guerrilla group. And there's this beautiful dialogue from Solomon at that point in the movie as he looks at his son Dia and he says, Dia, what are you doing? What are, what are you doing? And, and, you know, Dia's, you know, shaking. You know, he's like, he's getting ready to kill his dad. That's what he's been trained to do now at this point. And he basically says to Dia, this is not who you are. Right? And he shares all these things about his life back home. Right? And here he is staring his son, 
who's been taken from him, who's about to kill him. And he finishes with this line as he looks at his son. I am your father who loves you. And you will come home with me and you will be my son again. That's the gospel. That is what God says to you and I. Right, as he looks at us in the midst of our rebellion, right, pointing, pointing our wrath, our hate, our obstinance towards him, God looks at you and says, I am your father who loves you, and you will come home with me and be my son again. And you want to know how I know that's the case with our heavenly father? Because he sent Jesus Christ to die for my sin. That's how I know. That's how you know that God loves you. Because Christ died for you. Right? God loves you. You can know that both internally through the work of the Holy Spirit, but this is why it's important to understand Scripture because you can know it as a theological, doctrinal truth. This happened. And God's love for you is tangible and real. Now, this is it's going to kind of lead to a question then, right? Okay, I, God loves me. He's restored me. He's reconciled me to him. Right, I, I get it, Kevin. The work of the Holy Spirit is real. I, I, I get it. Okay, I get it. Jesus died for my sins. But how can I know that God will continue to love me? I get it. He died for my sin, but I'm going to continue to sin. I'm going to continue to rebel at times. How can I know that God will continue to love me? Look at what Paul says. In verses 9 and 10. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Okay, so there's, there's two words I want you to kind of point out there, right? In verse 9, he says that we've been justified by his blood. And then if you go down into verse 10, he says much more now that we are reconciled, which is a, a, an interchangeable word with the word justified, he says, shall we be saved by his life? Okay, so that word justified means to, be, to declare not guilty. So because of the work of Jesus Christ, you are declared not guilty. That's just one part of what is accomplished by what God did for you. But then, right, look at what Paul says. While we were in open rebellion to God, right, we were reconciled. We were declared not guilty for our treason to the Father. But since then, how much more so now that we have been reconciled in the midst of all that rebellion, will God save us? That word saved is this Greek word sozo, and what it means is to keep safe and sound from danger. Right, it's got a completely different spin on what justification is. So here's, here's what Paul is communicating. If God died for you while you were an enemy, if that was his plan, now that you are justified and reconciled, will he now fail to continue to love you? Of course not. And your proof of that is in the resurrection. Your proof is that not only did Jesus die for you, but then he rose again so that he might intercede on your behalf to the Father to keep you safe. Yes, I died for Kevin. Yes, we will extend grace and mercy to him again. 
Yes, we'll grant him repentance again. Right, that Jesus continues to intercede on your behalf as your high priest, as the book of Hebrews says. Right, I love what Romans chapter 8 says. Turn over there with me. Right, we'll be there in a few weeks, I promise. Look at what he says starting in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Right? You see the language of what Paul's talking about here? It's like, like don't be discouraged. Continue to live your life now. Know what, who can bring a charge against you now? You're, you belong to God. Don't you realize this? Right? You're his now. You're his son. You're his daughter. Then look at this. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. And look at this who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is the promise of what God is going to continue to do in you. That is the work of justification having implications for now. You can't screw this up. How good news is that? No matter how messed up you are, you, you cannot screw this up. You're like, Kevin, you don't know how messed up I am. Maybe not. But I, I probably don't. You know who does? God. And look at what he is saying. Not only does God love you and demonstrate that love on the cross, but then he keeps you in him. That there is nothing on earth that can promise you that kind of love. Nothing. There is nothing on earth that can promise you that level of unconditional, sacrificial love. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That's eternal security. God keeps you. God saves you. Now, Here's kind of Paul's challenge to us, right? He's, he's been saying, like, look, look at these practical implications of understanding the gospel. You should have hope. Right? You should enjoy your union with God. Right? You, should, you should walk through suffering with hopeful anticipation of what God is doing. And look at what he says in verse 11. This is super important. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Paul's challenge? Enjoy God. Enjoy Him. You don't need to live in fear. You don't need to be scared. You don't need to 
constantly be working to, to clean yourself up so you might be acceptable to him. God loves you and wants you to enjoy him. Right? I love John Piper's line about the gospel. God is the gospel. In the gospel, we get God. We get him. We don't, we don't get, like, the point of the gospel is not so that you can avoid hell. The point of the gospel is that you get God. You get to know your creator. You get to be with him. You get to be in him. That is the joy of justification. Here's what I want to encourage us with as we, as we're kind of heading into 2018. I'm not, I'm not big on resolution, but resolutions, but here's kind of what I'm going to resolve to do. I'm going to resolve to, to be reminded that God loves me. I can know that internally through the work of the Holy Spirit. I can know that externally through understanding what God has said to be true in his word, that Jesus died for me on the cross. And that the, the life of Christ now, post-resurrection, is continually, into eternity, interceding on my behalf. Right? I'm going I'm to believe all that to be true. I'm going I'm to store that up in my heart, and, and I'm going to enjoy that. I'm going to be more joyful this year. That's my resolution. And that's my, that's my encouragement to you. Now, how can we experience this joy? A few things. Number one, we can, we can do exactly what Paul is telling us to do here, and that's reflect on what your identity is in Jesus Christ. You should be reflecting on that daily. Not Sunday morning, not once a week at community group. You should daily be reflecting and reminding yourself of what God has done for you. Daily. You need a daily reminder of that because guess what? Your mind is daily going to wander to other things. I love what C.S. Lewis says. He says, if we find ourselves with the desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. More specifically, the kingdom of God. A pretty clear indicator is you kind of find yourself feeling restless about what's going on in your life. You're probably not finding your rest in him. And you need to start reflecting on what God has done for you. Number two, cultivate healthy spiritual disciplines. Pretty self-explanatory. Read your Bible, pray, etc., etc., etc. Meditate on God's word. Number three, on how you can experience this, this, this joy. Take repentance seriously. Guys, sin is a problem not so much for the actions itself, but what the actions demonstrate. Okay? When Adam and Eve chose to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, here's, here's what was going on at a heart level. I don't trust God. I don't trust God to be good, and I don't believe him to be good. All sin is rooted in that lie. All of it. Trace it all the way back. It can be selfishness, whatever, whatever, whatever the sin is, it's rooted in that lie. I don't, I don't believe God to be good. I don't trust him. So if you find yourself sinning on, on the regular, and you can consistently see something, you need to start searching your own heart and, and, and ask God to forgive you and seek repentance. So that God and his mercy might reorient you to understand why you're not trusting him. And where that sin is lying to you. Number four. 
be in community. Guys, I know that um, society is designed in such a way to teach you to pick yourself up by your own bootstraps, do it, do it on your own. You're super smart. You can be whatever you want to be, whatever else. Life as a Christian is not designed to be played solo. It's designed to be in community. That the, the body of Christ works together for the edification of one another to the glory of God. That we as a church gather to encourage one another so that we might make much of him. Right? Be in community. Resolve, resolve to be in community in 2018. Right? I, I know your schedule's busy. You can find time. Right? I, I know your class load is hard. You can find time. I know you work a 50 or 60 hour week. You can find time. If you need me to help you find time, let's sit down sometime. I'd be happy to tear your schedule to shreds. Lastly, here's how I want to kind of finish up this morning. If you are seeking Christ, if you are reflecting on your identity in Him, here are some signs that you are experiencing that joy that we're talking about. When we talk about the gospel, it is not just a theological truth to you, but something that is actually soul-satisfying. There was a season in my life where the gospel became a intellectual, philosophical construct of a worldview where I could just debate somebody and prove that I was right and they were wrong. But God in his mercy, right, released me from that and made the gospel tangible and real to my own heart where I look at it now and I see it as the sole purpose for why I'm alive, right, to make much of God because of what he's done for me. Number two. There's a quote from a, a guy who runs a ministry up in the Atlanta area named B.J. Thompson. And it's simply this. You know that you are a mess, but deeply loved by God. Number three. Your sin will draw you to God, not doubt if he loves you. Right, tracking that? If you are reflecting on your identity in Christ and experiencing joy, your sin will draw you to God, not cause you to doubt whether he loves you or not. Number four, you find yourself not making excuses for your sin. I can usually tell pretty quickly on whose power I'm running on when I start looking at my own sin. And if I start excusing it, it usually means I'm trying to present myself as being something better than I really am. And the beauty of what we saw this morning is I don't have to do that because of what God has already done for me. Number five, this is going to sting a little bit. You take criticism well. I was, uh, a friend shared this with me this week. I hadn't heard this quote in a while, but I'm going to share it this morning. If a man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him, for you are worse off than he thinks you to be. Charles Spurgeon. It's very true. Right. I've had people say some things about me, and like in the past, it'd be like, I can't, like, well, how could they say that about me? Here's the reality. I'm probably worse than what they think about me. They don't know what goes on in here, and you don't want to know. Trust me on that. I, I, I typically don't want to know. Right? 
But if, you fi- if you're finding your joy and your satisfaction in God, criticism of others towards you is actually really loving. Right? They're, they're pushing you, hopefully, towards holiness. And, e- and even if they're not, it's not changing who you are in Him. Their criticism cannot change your identity in Christ. Last one. And, and hopefully, right, I can, I can say this more fully than I can right now, death doesn't scare you. If, you're, if you are joyful and in him, what's, what's death on this side of eternity? Nothing. So here's my prayer for you guys. I'm gonna pray for you right now if you bow your heads. I'm gonna, I'm gonna pray for you guys right now. I'm gonna pray that we would resolve in 2018, right, right here, right now, with the help and the power of the Holy Spirit to find our joy in Christ. That God in his mercy, might you move these things to their proper place. Our families, our jobs, our school, our hobbies, our relationships. God, might you move them to their proper place in their proper order and place yourself at the center and the throne of our lives. That we might enjoy you and know who we are in you. God, grant us the ability to see our sin and repent of it fully. God, grant us in your mercy the ability to not excuse our sin and to take criticism, but instead rest and reflect on what you've done for us. May we rehearse the gospel daily to ourselves. May we say to ourselves, I am a mess, but I am deeply loved by you. And God, may that truth drive us to make much of you. May when people look at us, may they see men and women who are in love with their heavenly Father. Father, don't allow people to see a good Christian in me. Don't allow people to see a good person. May they see you. May they see the God who I serve. Lord, I pray that for each and every person in this room this morning, that 2018 would be a year filled with inexpressible gratitude and joy towards you because you first loved us. Father, thank you for this time. I love you and I ask this all in Jesus' name.